1: In the 1930s and 40s, it was kind of the apex of how much fun you could have in a movie theater. And in the 50s, you started to see these translations of these slightly more thought-out Rodgers and Hammerstein movie musicals. And then in the 60s, where they just kind of weren't cool. And you could argue that the movie musical never really got its mojo all the way back. Although I'm not sure our two guests today, Janine Basinger and Steve Metcalf, will agree. Let's find out after the news.
0: into a fret over nothing. Now, you just help us out today and find yourself
2: a place where you won't get into any trouble.
3: Some place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? There must be. (laughs) It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. It's far, far away. Behind the moon, beyond the rain,
1: of course, is the new Taylor Swift single, and we're excited to debut it. No, it's not. Obviously, it's not. Um, So, no, we're going to be talking about movie musicals today. I don't have to tell you what musical that is or what movie that is, or we're in a lot of trouble. Uh, Joining us right now is Janine Basinger, the founder of the Department of Film Studies at uh, Wesleyan University, an acclaimed program, uh, I should say, and the curator of the cinema archives there, and the author of 12 books on film, most recently, the movie musical Exclamation Mark, also (laughs) deserving of an exclamation mark um, is Steve Metcalf who is our uh, go-to person on all things musical and occasional performer with us and longtime uh, writer and thinker uh, about music and occasionally of music and I think that's all the introducing I'm prepared to do right now so there's so much to talk about but Janine you know one of the things we hear In that particular clip is what a lot of people consider to be the problem of a musical and maybe even more of a movie musical, which is that people are talking and then people are singing. Uh, And there's a, a contingent in this world who just goes, well, that just doesn't happen. You know, that's that's unnatural. That bothers me. But I'm I'm wondering at the time in the 30s, 40s, maybe early 50s, was that considered a problem or did everybody just accept the convention that if you went to a movie with Fred Astaire or Judy Garland in it, they would start singing at some point?
0: It was considered a problem. It was considered a problem by the business and by everybody. The challenge was from the beginning, you have to make people accept it. People think there are zombies, they have no problem. People (laughs) think you can go to space, they have no problem. People think anything except we are not going to sing to us each other today, we will not be doing that. We will not go to the restaurant and buy cheese by saying, I would like some cheese. They don't (laughs) buy it, you have to bring them into it properly, you have to set it up properly. And why that should be true is one of the vast mysteries of my personal universe, and I'm sure for us, but it it was really a challenge to the musical that wasn't just going to be a simple backstage musical. Because then they understood. They go on stage and they sing and dance. And maybe they're backstage and they rehearse singing and dancing. But if you were singing about yourself, if you were telling the audience through music how you felt, if there were characterization and plot development and everything integrated into the movie through music, something had to be done right to make that happen properly. Well,
1: first of all, you've revealed that you've never seen a Metcalf at Whole Foods before because he does <laughs> yeah. buy cheese that way. But um,
0: <laughs> Well, wh- how does that work for you? <laughs> yeah.
2: well, that's, that's on the occasions when I can afford it.
0: I would also America. like to say that is how I met my husband. But he was singing and dancing down the street, and I chased him for six months to find him, knowing absolutely I'd found my soulmate. <laughs> that <laughs> but,
1: sounds like a movie.
0: Uh, I think so. Well, Steve, just
1: re- react anyway. I have a specific question, but react how well, you please. I- Actually,
2: listening to that to that clip, um, you know, that lovely, lovely tune, which is, of course, now a great icon of uh, American music. Uh, I, I hope it isn't churlish to say that Harold Arlen, who wrote the music to that <laughs> tune, um, uh, later in his life became somewhat irritated that that, that was the tune that he was most n- known for by far. Here was a man who wrote... Stormy weather and mm-hmm. come rain yeah. or come shine, and that old and, black magic, that old black mm-hmm. magic, and the man that got away, and all these brilliant boundary pushing songs uh, was nevertheless uh, far more known for that tune than any other. And similarly, uh, you know, by all accounts, Judy uh, came to regard it as a little bit of a millstone in her career because whenever she would concertize, which of course she did. Uh, of her, a lot of, later in her life, she absolutely had to do that song, or people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is, to some extent, the curse of the you know giant hit, but uh, but a, a, a lovely moment nonetheless.
1: Well, so you, yeah, it, go ahead.
0: Well, it, it is strange that we have that problem in the business. I mean, the business really saw this as a problem, and they really worked to integrate or not integrate or to deal with the issue. And um, the history of the musical is interesting because it looks like, in general, nobody has a problem. They're doing backstage musicals and they're doing integrated musicals. But when we look back over time, what we see is that to solidify the popularity of the genre, they had to figure this out, that they were doing a backstage or an integrated And as it developed as a genre, it got more and more integrated, and they made more and more original Hollywood musicals as a result of that.
1: Well, you know, I want to ask both of you, and I'll start with you, Steve. You know, if we could begin to identify things that make a movie musical successful, uh, make it uh, successful in the sense of being good, not in terms of the box office necessarily, I don't know. What do you think are the keys to it? What what distinguishes one from another?
2: Well, you know, I might be a, a little different in this respect than some viewers, and Janine may may well take issue with this. But for me, uh, it all sort of begins with the individual musical numbers, and and relatedly, the songs themselves. I mean, for me, when I look back at some of the older uh, examples of of the movie musical, let's say the let's say the Astaire. Ginger Rogers movies. I I don't think, and Janine, you'll you'll jump in here, but I don't think we necessarily look at these movies as as towering pieces of filmmaking or script writing or what have you. You know, we look at the numbers. I mean, you 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 point out "Never Gonna Dance" from Swing Time, and I, I would certainly add to that uh, "Pick Yourself Up," uh, which mm-hmm. which happens early in the movie, as just being these these transcendently. Uh, captivating moments, and and to me, that uh, even even well forward in time, is is sort of the hallmark of what makes a, a, a an entertaining film musical.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. I I, I think that. Um, First of all, the the way it evolves over time is that you learn that the sooner people understand they are in a musical universe, the better. You need to establish musical performance early on so that the audience accepts this as a given and does not fight it. Uh, you need to know intervals. You have You can't have musical numbers back to back or too far apart people lose the participatory sense of a musical universe. You need to have, for heaven's sakes, people who can sing and dance. You need good music and you need um, you need the integration of the plot, you need to have numbers that are furthering characterization, furthering story, to make a really good integrated musical. And even with a backstage musical where the problem of why they're doing it is not so good, or important, you have to do these things properly. Establish a musical universe, and and know how to transition into a number and out of a number. Transitioning from non-musical to musical is one of the real challenges of filmmaking. For people who love musicals and go to Broadway musicals, or uh, that that doesn't seem to be a problem. But for the average filmgoer and for the making of musicals cinematically, you really have to understand what you're doing. And for Astaire, it was very simple. You just started the the number under the dialogue and he went into it, but it got more complicated as time went by.
1: But, you know, I think, Steve, though, to your point, you know, if we think about those movies uh, of the 30s and 40s, there was kind of this sense that you were going to have you know, enjoyable and talented, entertaining people who were going to sing the music uh, of Jerome Kern and Cole Porter and Richard Rogers and George Gershwin and Irving Berlin and Arlen and Harry Warren, who we'll get to, you know, and that everybody was just kind of going to enjoy themselves. And a lot of these plots don't make any sense at all, <laughs> nor does anybody want them to. There's just sort of a I think it's really You know, although maybe uh, Wizard of Oz is one of the beginning exceptions, this is a movie that kind of has to hang together. The plot has to make at least a certain amount of of sense. It's really not until you get to the 50s with these translations of Rodgers and Hammerstein from stage to screen that, you know, the plot is as important anyway. There may be some exceptions that you can think of. Well, Janine, you want to take that?
0: Well, uh, I first of all, they're beautifully integrated musicals very early on, such as Lubitsch's musicals and the wonderful "Love Me Tonight" by Reuben Mamoulian, where these things are beautifully integrated. And and uh, what what's what's significant about the historical development is it doesn't follow. A step by step trajectory it has both kinds from the beginning, but not enough people to make them so i wouldn 't say that you have to get all the way to the 50s mm-hmm. and particularly with original musicals, um, but I just jumped in so well my- no
2: I, I agree with that in fact, what I was going to say is you you frequently read you know in this source or that that you know, for example, Oklahoma was the first show to to really concern itself with integrating the show, songs into Showboat. Exactly, that's my point, and I, yeah. I think as great as Oklahoma is, it it certainly was in no way the first show to concern itself right. with with those things. Uh, it, it's also, you know, been held up as the first show, that, you know, that that has a kind of recognizable musical thumbprint. And and first of all, I don't even think that's true, much less uh, being the first. And as Janine points out, Showboat in 27 mm-hmm. is already mm-hmm. doing all of those things. Right. I mean, Showboat must have been an amazing moment Absolutely. for the people on opening night yeah. because there was nothing Absolutely. like that prior Absolutely. to that show. Um, but I but I think we're both saying the same thing, mm-hmm. which is that this yeah. was a very evolutionary mm-hmm. process and it didn't it just didn't proceed by step, you know, chronologically. Right,
0: right. And, and you know, it's, it's a... It's a tremendously complex history. I mean, when I started out going back to go over it, I thought, it isn't that I didn't know all this. I just didn't see it in, in, from the big picture how integ- how really uh, our oversimplified sense of this history really is – Starting with Showboat. I mean, you know, a story of miscegenation, alcoholism. I mean, it's like all the things that you say about musicals, they're never serious. They're never Mm -hmm. they never have dark things. They're never integrated right there. 1927.
1: Right. The pitch meeting must have been, you know, a little (laughs) bit, you know, a little bit. So, so, um, so Janine, I want to hear from both of you on this, but I think it is true that if, if you asked a hundred people who weren't terribly young, uh, to just imagine the first uh, movie musical that pops into your head. Singing in the Rain might come up more than anything. And so sort of, there's a way in which it kind of embodies what people think a movie musical, particularly a movie m- musical of kind of that golden age might be. And, and I think you in the book sort of identify it that way too.
0: Yeah, I do think so. I, I think Singing in the Rain is the musical for people who hate musicals. Also, the musical for people who like musicals. (laughs) Also, the musical for people who love musicals. It's a safe musical. If I were put under the gun and said, you've got to play a musical that everybody will like, I'd go safe with Singing in the Rain. Because it's genuinely funny it, and its humor holds up pretty well, and it does have great musical numbers, and it peps right along, and it satirizes Hollywood, which everyone always likes. And I, I do think you're right about that. Do you agree?
2: I, I do. I mean, the the one thing I would say, I mean, I love I love that movie, and in as much as it seems to be everybody's default, you know, best movie yeah. musical of all time, I, I I certainly don't take exception to that. I I, I think it's. Kind of fair to say that it it its ambitions are not as grand as some musicals I mean it doesn 't really fair. have any dark mm-hmm. themes it's, it's that it explores
0: it 's very fair, very fair. Um, and, and they didn 't think they were making the greatest one either. Right. They thought they were doing that with an American in Paris or maybe even the pirate, which failed. <laughs> Kelly and Minnelli thought people were going to kiss their feet, as they said, for the pirate. They thought they had made the greatest musical ever, and it turned out only six people liked it. Yeah, right. And two of them were them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, if you can watch Donald O'Connor in Make 'em laugh right. and not yeah. and not be entertained right. and even even yeah. double up with laughter yourself, you, you, yeah. you're missing something yeah. important. Who are you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. what are you made of? And
1: Steve, it's also a, a movie musical that's done something that I think not too many others have. This was a movie musical first, and now, I mean, I think Conard High School, you know, did, <laughs> did did the stage version of it. It's a movie musical that then acquired much, much later in its life a stage version, which not too yeah. many, not too many of them do. Although it's that's been happening a little bit yeah, more.
2: American
0: in Paris, American in Paris,
2: which is a surprisingly yes. good uh, stage yeah. adaptation. Mm-hmm. You know, Gigi started out as a movie, and then now it has a stage version, which I've never seen, but I, mm-hmm. I suppose is no, I is okay. Be... Um, so it's a that that kind of back formation is something that I think, uh, is is happening more, and yeah. probably will happen more.
0: It's so interesting that originally Hollywood depended so much on stage musicals and made so many of them into movies, and then now Broadway's beginning to depend on Hollywood yeah. movies, musicals or non-musicals, to be making musicals about, which is interesting.
2: Which which reminds me, you know, and Janine and I were talking about this a few minutes ago. I, I I was saying that in in my lifetime, it seems to me that as long as I've been aware of anything, I've been hearing oh, you know, the Hollywood musical is dead and it's dying. And even to some extent, the Broadway musical is dead and dying. And, and there certainly, as Janine's lovely book points out, there certainly have been times with respect to Hollywood where that might have actually seemed more or less true, at least briefly, mm-hmm. um, but only briefly. Um, but interestingly, you don't really hear people say that anymore. I mean, I would say in the last few years, n- nobody is – is uh, you know decrying the death of Broadway or or film musicals and and you know as I said I I think we we can uh, thank Lin Manuel Miranda for a lot of that just for creating this. Phenomenon yeah, that we, uh, we've never seen the likes so. of.
0: You know, we can also thank God help us, Walt Disney, because right. by making constantly making animated musicals that no one questioned because they were animals or animated creatures singing, and making them for young people. He grew us a generation of, of viewers who took singing and dancing and everything for granted. Right, and, and two
2: things. First of all, some pretty good songs from exactly those shows. Exactly right. Uh, in fact, exactly Colin right. is a partisan of the Beauty and the Beast yeah, title song.
0: Yeah, me too. Me too, Colin. Me um, too.
2: But also, I think, beginning at least with Aladdin, these these uh, animated Movies w- w- were as entertaining for adults right. as they were for children. Well, so. I think
1: I a lot of credit. We have to uh, take a break here and uh, uh, come back. I, since we're on this, though, I will say that a lot of credit goes to Alan Menken. Alan Menken's just a hell of a songwriter yeah. in a way that, let's face it, the Sherman brothers were not.
0: Right. <laughs> you know? Right.
1: I mean, right. Mary Amen. Poppins is a very nice right. musical, but those aren't great songs. Right. But, but, you know, Menken, Menken also has this whole oeuvre that exists outside Absolutely. all the Disney yeah. stuff, yeah. and there's Cabaret songs that are only yeah. done that way. I mean, and he's an oratorio. <laughs> but,
0: but Disney growing the young people as an audience yes. primed. And also MTV. We don't want to forget that because the people grew up watching little tiny musical segments right. and so that those things did a lot to keep a, a, an audience ready to go to musicals and accept The them. debt
1: we owe to MC Hammer is just impossible to pay back. <laughs> All right, we have to we're going to go out of this segment with uh singing in the rain, which is, you know, in many ways the musical everybody's just got to love.
0: You bet. Um
3: singing in the rain. From the place Come on with the rain I have a smile on my face I walk down the lane Does she dance very beautifully? Who? The girl you're in love with.
2: Yes. Very.
3: The girl you're engaged to. The girl you're going
0: to marry. Oh, I don't know. I've danced with you. I'm never going to dance again. Boy, I'm left without a penny
2: was the scream he left me my feet
0: and
3: so i put them down on anything but the la belle, the perfectly swell romance never gonna dance never gonna dance only gonna
1: love Again, I hope I don't have to tell you who those people are, but that is uh, Fred and Ginger, of course, uh, that is Never Gonna Dance from Swing Time. Janine Basinger, the founder of the Department of Film Studies, the acclaimed Department of Film Studies at Wesleyan University, the curator curator of the cinema archives there, and the author of 12 books on film. Her latest, which we are here to talk about today, is the movie, movie Musical! exclamation point. And then with us, our guru on all things musical, uh, Steve Metcalf, uh, writer and composer, and many other things as well. We should... Actually Actually, be honest and say this, or just put our cards on the table. Steve and I, and our collaborator Larry Bloom, actually did write a musical <laughs> at one point <laughs> that was performed at Ivoryton. So, but no movie, no movie offer. Strangely, well, um, well you it, guys
0: should have called me. Yeah, I, yeah. I would have <laughs> fixed you up.
1: Uh, I'm writing that down, yeah. Janine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. Um, this particular song and this particular m- movie Janine, this is kind of your gateway drug in- yes. into the world of movie musicals yes, explain it is. that.
0: Well when I was a little girl I I, I come from the age when people drag their kids to the movies no matter how old you were so by the time I was three I could put my little behind down in a chair and just sit there and stick you know with it And but so I loved movies so my older sister really arranged a lot of screenings for me in places um, to see old films and so this for me uh, was an old film that she had shown to me so when I saw this movie I I experienced that thing that we all sometimes do in a movie where I went to another level of it I saw as a child that pain joy complication what I didn't know was sex but later found out was sex and everything else could be conveyed through a musical number. In the nightclub glittered, it shimmered, it represented it had orchids, it had it had a be- it had beauty that I didn't see on the farm in South Dakota. I wasn't looking like this at all. And I saw all of these gorgeous things. She was beautiful, he was beautiful, but I understood that Plot, characterization, pain, joy could all be contained in a musical number. And I had already understood as a child that movies were going to usually come to a point where things had gone wrong and you had to wait and get sorted out. And as a little girl, I really hated that. I used to complain bitterly. Now I have to sit here while they sort this out. (laughs) I hated that. And suddenly I saw, but wait, they did it. They did it with shimmering lights and beautiful movements and this sort of hidden but yet explicit, and it could contain... I just got it somewhere in my guts, you know, that this was good. And I fell in love with Fred and Ginger. I fell in love with that movie, and I fell in love with musicals. And luckily, I had come along at a point in life when most of the films were going to be good musicals or even musical musicals let's put it that way so this was a real turning point for me it was a movie marker for me so
1: can we just make have, talk a, a moment about that the man that we're hearing there too you know I mean Astaire to me is the perfect summary of what that era was all about and and people think of him as a dancer although I've always believed and I've had other people who would know better than I would tell me the same thing that he could really get a song across there's a way in which this guy he's a really great vehicle to transmit a Berlin tune or a Gershwin tune yeah. well actually
2: Berlin himself i exactly. think more than once uh, is on record saying that that he thought fred was yeah. the premier interpreter of his right. songs and yeah. perhaps you know m- m- all of those songs which i think is is self evident if you spend a few minutes with him. i mean he he was a yeah. master fraser and he just had that kind of elegant legato style and and yeah. the, when I, you when you think of voices of absolutely. that era Fred there Astaire. aren't men no. who can match that,
0: and he's talking to us and communicating. And you know, Fred Astaire was a very good drummer. He uh, he could play the piano. He um, he was very musical to his core. He also composed music himself, and some of his things weren't too bad.
2: He had one sort of hit, didn't he? Yeah, was it was bu- yeah, a building something? up to an awful letdown. Yeah, building
0: up to an awful letdown. See if you can sing it, hum it now. I got no clue on that <laughs> one. I can't help you, but he. Um, Berlin did say I'd rather have you know, I'd rather have him introduce a song than anybody because he could put it over. But he walks even the way, as I, I say in my book, the way that some great drummers walk, as if he's responsible for the rhythm of life. And that's how he sings the songs. He's he's amazing. He's just amazing. That to me he's perfection.
1: So uh, before we leave this era, uh, Steve, we should just say a little. You said at the beginning I asked you, you know, m- what really defines what makes a great musical movie great and you said it really starts with the songs and the songwriting. So this is an era where a lot of these songs are also the hit songs that everybody is singing outside of movies and outside of Broadway shows, and there is just this panoply of these amazing songwriters. One of the ones that that Janine uh, highlights in the book, and a guy who wrote, I think, much more for Hollywood than for Broadway is Harry Warren, otherwise known as Salvatore Antonio Guarana. I have to look that up. <laughs> Harry Warren's you. actual you're name. Just, but You're just yeah. showing off. <laughs> no, that just, I can get to Wikipedia pretty fast. Uh, I
0: appreciated
1: that. So, um, I don't know, maybe you can just see a little little bit more about the the, the music itself, the songwriting by by the big five, you know, Gershwin, Kern, Berlin, Porter, and Rogers. Well,
2: uh, as you well know, Colin, I mean, so the big five are the ones that are routinely invoked in these conversations, and they should be because really between them or among them, they, they own such a huge percentage of what has now become the American songbook, especially, by the way, Dick Rogers, who I think I mean, not to take anything away from the others, but I mean, when you just consider the sheer volume of immortal songs that any individual poured out in his lifetime, I, I think Richard Rodgers is clearly at the top of that uh, mountain. And then there's, you know, then there's a kind of a, I don't know, a kind of second tier that those of us who pay attention to this stuff would invoke, and that would include Harold Arlen, who who wrote over the rainbow and hogie carmichael and maybe frank lesser and a few others but but harry warren is interesting because um you know he he really is like in a way the the most successful songwriter that nobody ever heard of mm-hmm. and and uh uh again janine you may have something to say about this it it feels to me because harry like some other uh composers worked more much more in hollywood than than on Broadway, it feels to me like like Hollywood was not very kind to its composers. They they were sort of assembly line piece workers mm-hmm. and they went out and they, they fulfilled their contract and they supplied eight tunes or whatever they were contracted to do and then, you know, thank you very much and we never heard of, of them after that. So whereas there was a certain romance to being a Broadway composer and still is, you know whether you were Gershwin or Porter or whatever it is, it it, it feels to me like Hollywood composers, like Warren, uh, just n- never got the attention as individuals and as and as creative mm-hmm. artists that that uh, was their due.
0: I, I agree. I, I I would have loved to write on all of the greats, but others have done it and could do it better than I. But I selected to the to write more about Harry Warren because he does represent exactly what you just correctly described, the journeyman Hollywood composer. He did do other things, but this is the man who took an assignment. You need to write a hit song that we can sell uh, sheet music and records for Alice Faye, it's going to be a period movie, so it's got to sound like it came from that period. But we want to sell it today, so it's got to be modern. Here's her range; you can't get out of it. Uh, here's what she can handle, and here's what the scene is about. You got to fit it. So he writes, "You'll never know." One of the greatest of the tunes, exactly. Of all time. But that's his assignment. It's an assignment, and it's not that a Broadway composer wouldn't be having a similar kind of assignment but it's like we need it Thursday and it's got to work for her nobody else we don't care if anyone ever you know it, it was a it was a job he dr- got up in the morning he drove to work he composed and then he went home i mean it was um now you're going to write for Carmen Miranda. She she's very fussy. She knows her own music. She has her own banda de lua. They they won't play any rhythms other than Portuguese, Brazilian. You got to get in that. <laughs> you know he had to. This is how he was working. It was a different kind of thing. They they he not the glamour figure. He was the workaday world composer who delivered who delivered to fit a character, to fit a star or a star's range, to fit a plot, to fit a traveling song, to to do what was needed, get it done fast, and put it on. And that's different from Gershwin. Mm-hmm, and right. that's just you, – yeah. you're absolutely well, right.
2: I, as I was coming down at a stoplight, I, I actually – off the top of my head because I'm not sure everybody listening to this will particularly know Harry Warren's name or mm-hmm. what what he did besides you'll never know. So I jotted down at last, which is of course the song Love that, that. Ed James, James has made yeah. into a have to sing it at every mm-hmm. wedding song from from uh, um, Orchestra
0: Wives and sun valley serenade. Ah,
2: well, mm-hmm. there you go. I didn't jot that down yeah. but Those two Lullaby of Broadway 42nd mm-hmm. Street um, only I only have eyes for
1: you I would like to point out that he's the greatest writer of all time of songs with titles featuring American cities that have double O's in them. Because he yeah. got Chattanooga Choo Choo and I Got a Gal in Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo, Kalamazoo. I'll stack right. those up against anybody <laughs> else's. Well, I think the cop who pulled you over mentioned that to you, too. he, he said, he Steve, I think he left I Got a Gallon in Kalamazoo off that one," you know And he let me gr- off. Yeah.
0: You know what's great about it? See, he understood cutting rhythm. He understood mm. how to write for a movie number that was going to get cut. He understood rhythm has got to come into this, and he can't have a rhythm that is. He had to see some rough cuts and get a sense. And he was a true Hollywood composer. I mean, I guarantee you, Gershwin or or Berlin weren't thinking about cutting. Oh, yeah. and so, he was. I, I don't
1: want I, if we talk too much about Harry Warren, oh, yeah, we're going to okay. like miss everything. Move right. So on. actually, we're going to have to <laughs> speed a little bit. And we talked a, a, a little bit about how in the the fifties, uh, a lot of those um, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, most most of which. I think we're on stage in the 40s. They got onto the screen in the 50s. Uh, But then this other thing happens, Uh, this uh, other musical that in many respects shifts the entire um, nature of the Broadway musical and probably the movie musical, too. I'm talking about West Side Story. Uh, Let's hear a little bit from Quintet. Jets are gonna have their way tonight. The Puerto Ricans grumble, fair fight, but if they start a rumble, we'll rumble them right. We're gonna hand them a surprise tonight. We're gonna cut them down to size tonight. We said okay, no rumpus, no tricks, but just in case they jump us, we're ready to miss. So, Steve, why don't you get us started on this? Well, first of all, Bernstein was a
2: little irritated because that's the movie version, and he thought they took that tune too fast. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they made it better. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we, we have a whole second show here. But, well, West Side Story obviously is one of the landmarks, as, as Janine writes in the book, one of the landmark five, I think, that she identifies uh, certainly, uh, in the in the history of the genre, um, to me, one of the interesting things about West Side Story is a. Uh, I guess I'm going to say two things. A, you know, we have this movie coming out l- later this fall that 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 Spielberg has done. He has dared to make a second movie version of West Side Story, and I'm I'm fascinated actually at how freaked out a lot of people are about this. That as if you you just can't make a uh, an, another movie of West Side Story, you know, in as much as the first one is a classic. But you know, let's be honest: the first one is sixty years old, and maybe it's time for another one. And of course, there is a brand new and very controversial revival on Broadway going on even as we speak. So, so to me, these these are telltale emblems of the fact that this really is a landmark piece of American culture. As if, as if anybody needed me to say that. Um, <laughs> But it's it is to get back to the to the point that I raised uh, a few minutes ago, you know, it is the music and the numbers and and the dancing that make this show. It's not, uh, I I would argue, it's not a particularly inspired book. Arthur Lawrence's work on this was not, you know, anything special. Tony it Kushner
1: fine. is doing the book for the Spielberg project. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway,
2: continue. Um, but uh, but because the music is. Uh, is literally timeless in the way that any any classical music is uh, th- this show obviously i think will will dance its way into the hearts of every generation from here to <laughs> whenever so uh, you know it, it's just it's just uh It's just one of those few shows that that is kind of
1: eternal. Jeanne, I want to ask you one question about Mm -hmm. – because this is a a nice place to ask about a question that's sort of about form and medium. Mm -hmm. So some of the thrill of going to see a Broadway show is seeing people realize live – Uh, a difficult musical or dance number. You know, there's something thrilling about that. I I actually saw last year on Broadway The Prom, which they're making a movie out of uh, uh, now with James Corden and I don't Mm -hmm. know who else. But there's you know, it's not the greatest musical in the world or anything like that. But you know, when they do things there's something incredibly exciting about the fact that you're there live, seeing it, something could go wrong, whatever. And and movies are different and movies, this movie is different enough so that Natalie Wood, who would not obviously have been able to participate uh, in a stage production of this is is Maria.
0: Well, here you have it. I mean, broad theater and cinema are not the same thing. Hello, everybody out there, in case you never thought of that. This is my insight. But uh, so, you know, one, they're different experiences, and the people who are making musicals have to Really be aware of that. And when you take a great, successful Broadway show and you make it into a musical, you can't just photograph the thing that was great because you lose what it had that... So much of what made it great, which was the electricity of the live performance, the excitement, the movement in front of you. The film is a different kind of experience. And so this is a conversation that you know I would have to give you a you know a, a full course lecture on, but it, um, they the thing is, Natalie Wood represented a beautiful person and they thought that would be fine because they were going to have the music anyway and they were going to bring you in close, which is what they can do, and they were going to do it all differently. One of the interesting things about this remake concept is that film historians will tell you, will give you statistics or pseudo-statistics or some kind of statistics that say very clearly that there is strong evidence to indicate that whatever version of a musical or any Novel or anything, film you see first is the one you love. And I said, does this mean that if I spent my life showing Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand <laughs> in A Star Is Born, I would make that into the world's <laughs> greatest musical? Because this is not good news. <laughs> no, not
1: indeed. Actually, and that gives us a good way to go to a break right here. <laughs> we got one segment coming up. I want to talk a little bit about the immediate present and immediate immediate past of movie musicals. So let's, since you mentioned her, let's. Go out with a little bit of Streisand.
3: One ticket on the Empire Limited departing from New York at 8:30 a.m. Now boarding a track 14. Fanny, what's the matter with you? Haven't you any prize? no not. I love the guy he loves me. I want to be with him. It's that simple. Fanny, can't you see you making a fool of yourself? Georgia, when something's right for me, I do it, and this is right for me. Have you asked yourself if it's right for Nick? Nick? I'll make it right for him. Fanny, don't think your oh no, neck out this way. Don't be ready. Don't Don't you Don't know know do it, you know do it. You Don't do it. You Don't do it. Do it. Don't Dad had, like, a midlife crisis, I think. So I've been told. Made his way to Arizona started working for uh, his family on a pecan ranch. A pecan ranch? Yeah. Knocked up the family's daughter. She was just shy of 18. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. That's when I came into the picture. Okay. The son of an (laughs) (laughs) 18-year-old. Well, she died at childbirth my dad um, I'm sorry. he uh, he died when I was 13 so I guess my brother would tell you that he raised me but uh, I don't know who was raising who just 127 acres of nuts Navajo and nowhere to go tell me something boy Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hard Does the mean?
1: All right. Uh, that uh, You know what that is. Uh, okay. So it's A Star is Born, <coughs> the latest remake of A Star is Born. So uh, I'm here with Jeanine Basinger and Steve Metcalf. A time is short. Um, so I want to give you my theory that you can then, in an entertaining way, tear apart. Um, so, I so I sort of think that one of the problems that movie musicals faced at a certain point, kind of getting out of the era that we just left and coming into the, the era that we were just starting to talk about is, so in the 50s, you have... Rock and roll is starting to become important, but you also have these, as we said, Rodgers and Hammerstein movies, which were, you know, really, really entertaining and really good too and, and very listenable and you could imprint on them. As you get into the 60s, in 61, I think you have West Side Story, which is just, you know, undeniably just cool. It just is cool. Uh, and, but, you know, the, like, Sound of Music is the last – one of the last ones there. I think that bleeds into the 60s. And then you have some Streisand movies and you have Mary Poppins and you have rock getting really more and more important. And I think one of the problems was that musicals weren't – they were kind of counter-cool uh, in the 60s. As the baby boom generation started looking for its own music and building its own taste, there was a way in which there weren't musicals that corresponded very closely to this. All right. Tear it apart.
0: Well, one of the things that happened for musicals, it wasn't they, – they became not cool. They, they weren't – they were too square. Dr. Doolittle? I don't think so. And uh, they became, you know, uh, clinging to a portrait of, of, of a more happy ending or whatever. And we moved into, say, the Vietnam era, Movies became dark. uh, America turned on itself, and its genres were turned inverted. It was easy to invert a Western to accommodate attitudes toward Vietnam. You just increased the violence and all that. But what does a musical do? It it became more difficult. Musicals had to contend with the collapse of the studio system, which is one of the most important things, because the money to make them wasn't there, The personnel to do them were no longer under contract. So to assemble and make one was outrageously expensive and they couldn't make the money back. And they were going against the times. They were going against the times musically, intellectually, emotionally, politically. And I think that's a part of it. What what would you say? Yeah, I agree with
2: that. I mean, I I think in the broader (laughs) cultural sense, it took you know the 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 large ocean liner that constituted the Broadway musical took a long time to kind of turn in the direction of uh, pop and rock music, which was increasingly becoming the language of American popular music. And so, for a long time, I think there there was a kind of a, a gap in uh, in younger. Composers. I mean, you could argue, of course, as I as I think you do, Janine, that Hard Days Night and Help were, in fact, mm-hmm. movie musicals of, of a sort. Right. They, they weren't maybe classic constructions, but um, and Elvis, you had
0: Elvis, and,
2: and, and Elvis. Although, in a way, Elvis was a, had kind of one foot in both worlds he did. because he did. most of the people creating mm-hmm. at that point those those Hal Wallace m- movies were were not Elvis's generation, and God knows they weren't. Uh, you know, the the young consumers of rock and roll, they were, a lot of those guys were older Tin Pan Alley people.
0: You had the new Hollywood coming. You had Marty. You had these people coming out from New York, from television, everything shifting to a more independent mode, a lower budget. New voices were coming in, but they weren't a lot of musical voices that were working, particularly at that time. And the public was feeling... Uh, not so interested in them. When I went through everything historically, I was surprised to see how many musicals were actually being made <laughs> during this time. But nobody went to them, or nobody. I was going to say they
2: didn't them. do very well. That's
0: right, they did not. And the big ones didn't, like Star with Julie Andrews, or the little ones didn't. I mean, even things like Phantom of Paradise or interesting things that came along later just didn't get the attention.
2: And, and the movies, I mean, the the shows that reflected what was happening in American music, like Chorus Line, which, of course, was a smash right. on Broadway, somehow produced one of the worst right. Hollywood m- movie musicals, I, as I think you agree, I do. ever made. I, I mean, do. just, just uh, an unspeakable turkey, which I think set the cause back right, a little yeah. bit.
1: I think also, you know, one thing that Steve and I were talking about getting ready for this was that you also had almost that. The problem that we started the show out with. We've only got a couple of minutes left, so we'll have to do a whole other second show. But um that the so-called problem of people talking and then singing, one of the ways people saw that with in recent years in particular is to have people who can't sing be in movies. So right. you've got Johnny Depp and Helen and Bonham Carter doing Sweeney Todd. I mean, they can't sing, it doesn't make any sense. Absolutely
0: right. Why do we go to musicals for with people who can't sing and dance, the it's almost—it's
2: almost as if being able to have musical training and vocal training right. is unhip. Mm. It's square, yeah, right? And I—I yeah. I ha- I hate to say it, but I would level the same charge at La La Land.
0: So would I. And so would Moulin I. Rouge. So for would that I. So would I. We're bonding so, right. here. So, so <laughs> well, La, La La
2: Land.
1: <laughs> we, need to, we need to do Act Two. Here. La La Land. Also, has kind of a song rating problem too. I, <laughs> yeah, I, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, nobody's sitting gathering around the piano to sing those I songs. Spent
0: the whole film wondering, is that elephant thing is that how big is that I mean I was like totally I mean I paid no attention to the musical performance so
1: Janine I got literally 60 seconds left but there was a question I wanted to one thing I would like to talk about some other day is what would have happened if Michael Jackson had kept his stuff together and like really inherited you know uh, what Astaire could do and and kind of you know
0: fantastic yeah fantastic we would have had something fantastic even the little bit we see of him in the Wiz this man he could dance he he had power he had energy he had he was distinctive this is the greatest loss of that era as a musical performer that we didn't have him and by the way that represents generations going backwards Mm -hmm. of fabulous african-american performers that we could have had more of but Michael Jackson was a star, yeah, a Amen. star, and that's Amen. kind of
1: the you know, I mean, Steve, that is kind of the thing that another thing that we miss. and you got a guy like Hugh Jackman who really can do this stuff, but but I don't know, he's he's known more as Wolverine, I think, probably than as a guy who does musicals.
0: Yeah, I would say if you were choosing for him for Wolverine or Barnum, they, people would know him as Wolverine, and that. but he he is a you know. It's it's a ponder. It is another show. We okay. have to come up with this answer, and I'm about sure about tomorrow. We can. All right,
1: okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So well, we're going to stop there. Other than to say that, uh, first of all, so grateful. Terrific. I just I just want to say this
2: this book of Janine's is a. F- fabulous book it's a lot of fun and, and it's a tremendously entertaining book yeah. and you need to read it
1: so that book is the movie musical exclamation point uh, with janine basinger as the author and steve Metcalf exclamation point uh always <laughs> here for uh, <laughs> uh, anything that requires an exc- exclamation point especially musical things though thanks very much thanks to jonathan mcpance for producing this show and cat pastor for uh, doing such a great job on the board let's go out with Adina menzel even though the wicked movie still hasn't been made